WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to WRFI.org slash donate. I'm Peter Trampelli. After the headline news, you'll hear another tale from a trampoline story slam competition. Today's story is from WRFI volunteer Peter Bahia, who participated in Trampoline's 2016 event, Seven Deadly Sins. But first, here's the weather forecast courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, mostly cloudy with lows in the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 40s. Tomorrow night, rain with lows in the low 30s. And Saturday, snow, then chance of rain, with highs in the mid-30s. And now here's tonight's news for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. The Tompkins County Health Department is reporting yet another potential public exposure to COVID-19. This time, the positive case was detected at the Trip Hammer Reuse Center at 2255 North Trip Hammer Road in Ithaca. An employee of the store who tested positive worked at the Trip Hammer Reuse Center on Wednesday, January 6th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. The health department recommends that anyone who may have been exposed to the virus at this Trip Hammer Reuse Center to enter precautionary quarantine and get tested at one of the Cayuga Health sampling sites. If the test is negative, the health department asks that uh, you continue to monitor for symptoms for a full 14 days from the most recent exposure date. If you become symptomatic, please get tested again. You can visit wrfi.org slash coronavirus under the January 12th update to review the specific times of this and past exposures and to learn about where to get tested for COVID-19 locally. Now we'll take a look at the local COVID-19 caseload in Tompkins County. The number of hospitalizations due to complications from the virus had a staggering drop of 20 between Tuesday and Wednesday, bringing the total down to nine as of last night. According to the Tompkins County Health Department, at the time of our 6 p.m. broadcast, there are 269 active cases of COVID-19. Yesterday, there were an additional 27 positive cases, and 24 people were released from quarantine. In Schuyler County, today there were seven new cases of COVID-19 reported. 63 active cases remain, according to their health department. Six people are now hospitalized due to the virus in Schuyler. The Schuyler Health Department is planning to hold hold COVID vaccination clinics for Phase 1A and 1B every week. However, this is contingent on how many doses of the vaccine the state sends. Next week, two clinics will be held on Thursday from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. and Friday, January 22nd, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Both will be at the Watkins Glen Community Center. The health department notes that they cannot open registration until they know how much vaccine they will receive. More updates will be shared about vaccination in Schuyler County as they're made available. 
At a special virtual meeting Tuesday, the Enfield Town Board voted to appoint Acting Supervisor Stephanie Redmond to the supervisor position, the Ithaca Times reports. There were constant interruptions and accusations as the three town board members, town clerk, and former town officials argued and debated whether to vote to appoint Redmond to the position. This was due partially to the fact that there were only three sitting town council persons. Former town board member Michael Miles resigned from his position on Saturday. In his resignation letter, he cited a, quote, toxic nature, unquote, of the town of Enfield government. Sustained debate during the meeting continued as Councilperson Robert Lynch sought to delay a vote on whether to appoint Redmond to a permanent supervisor position. Enfield Town Clerk Ellen Woods opposed the appointment, saying that Redmond had accused her of fraud. Councilperson Virginia Bryant attempted to move towards a vote, but was rebuffed by newly appointed Councilperson James Ricks. Further, Lynch threatened to abstain from voting if a motion was put forward to vote on Redmond's appointment. Bryant and Ricks replied that they would resign if he abstained. Lynch eventually agreed to take part on, in a vote on Ren Redmond's appointment. The three council persons eventually did vote to appoint Redmond as supervisor. Six Tompkins County legislators who took office in 2017 have made a joint announcement about their plan to run for re-election this year, the Ithaca Voice reports. Legislators Shauna Black, Henry Graniston, Deborah Dawson, Ann Corman, Amanda Champion, and Dan Klein are all Democrats. Klein is the only one who has served before 2017. Each legislator responded to a questionnaire from the Ithaca Voice outlining what their priorities would be if they were re-elected for the coming term. The responses varied, mostly depending on what committees they are currently serving on in the leg legislature. Legislators focused on topics such as moving the public safety reform process forward, public health efforts amid the pandemic, and helping the local economy recover amid COVID-19. Many of the legislators stressed that the ability of the local economy to recover depends on federal and state economic assistance to relieve the significant burden on local governments. The legislators also cited hopes to work on environmental policy initiatives and promoting affordable housing. In more local government news, on Wednesday, January 6th, former Assemblywoman Barbara Lifton was given a virtual farewell hosted by the Tompkins County Democratic Committee, or TCDC. Members of the committee, Controller Tom DiNapoli and other New York State Assembly members, including Lifton's successor, Anna Kellis, recognized Lifton as she retired from her position. Lifton was praised for her efforts on many fronts, for election reform, dedication to education equality in the state, to fighting for a fracking ban in New York, among other climate issues. Other people present at the Zoom meeting voiced their appreciation for all the other work in bringing lasting change over the last 18 years to the 125th Assembly District. Ithaca police performed a water rescue yesterday morning after a man known to have warrants against him attempted to evade arrest by fleeing into an inlet of Cayuga Lake. 32-year-old Joshua Seaman was known by IPD to have multiple warrants for resisting arrest in violation of probation. Police spotted Seaman while out investigating an unrelated incident, the Ithaca Voice reports. Officers attempted to stop him when he fled. In order to evade officers, Seaman jumped into the inlet to the east of Taganic Boulevard near West Buffalo Street. According to IPD, the temperature outside was 31 degrees at the time. Officers were able to pull Seaman out of the water 
at which time they rendered first aid to him until medical personnel arrived on scene. He was transported to Cayuga Medical Center via ambulance in the custody of Ithaca police. Seamen had been issued appearance tickets to return to Ithaca City Court at a later date. Custody had was turned over to Dryden police regarding the violation of probation. There are no further details available for release at this time. In New York State news, Governor Andrew Cuomo has announced that New York will contract for an additional 2,500 megawatts of offshore wind power. Andrea Sears with the Public News Service has more. Governor Andrew Cuomo used his third installment of the State of the State Address Wednesday to take on meeting the challenges of climate change, calling green energy a prime economic opportunity and a pressing moral imperative Cuomo announced that the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority will contract for two new offshore wind projects generating 2,500 megawatts of clean electric power, the largest offshore wind project in the country. Joe Martens heads the New York Offshore Wind Alliance and calls that a quantum leap forward toward meeting the goal of 9,000 megawatts by 2035, as mandated by the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act the governor signed in July 2019. Here we are less than two years out, and the state has already contracted for almost half of that. The governor also announced contracts for 24 new solar projects that will generate a total of about 2,200 megawatts of power. As in every other state, the COVID pandemic has led to huge economic losses and unemployment in New York. Martens notes that Cuomo's plans will use addressing the looming climate crisis as a way to help get the economy back on track. These projects represent high-paying jobs. They represent billions of dollars in investment. And it is exactly the right way to get the economy restarted. The offshore wind proposals also call for new investments in worker training, transmission infrastructure, and port facilities. Martin says the plan includes onshore facilities for job training, manufacturing, and assembly that will bring economic opportunities and equity to areas that need them the most. The projects are in disadvantaged communities where there are environmental justice issues, and this is a great opportunity for that community to get involved in a project that will put that community to work. He believes actual construction of the offshore wind projects could begin around the middle of this decade. For New York News Connection, I'm Andrea Sears. In more New York State news, with marijuana legalization on Governor Andrew Cuomo's 2021 agenda, drug policy advocates want the benefits of legalization to go to those most impacted by the war on drugs. We are going to turn things over again to Andrea Sears. Drug policy advocates say marijuana legalization must include dedicated community reinvestment to address the harms done by the war on drugs. During his State of the State address on Monday, Governor Andrew Cuomo once again said legalization of marijuana for adult use is a priority for this year's legislative session. The governor has proposed offering licensing opportunities and assistance in communities of color that have been disproportionately impacted by drug enforcement for decades. But Melissa Moore, New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance, says legalization, which is expected to raise more than $300 million a year in tax revenue, must also include restitution. Directing resources 
to the neighborhoods and the communities that were within the eye of the target of the drug war for so long. Cuomo says his proposal would generate much-needed revenue and provide an opportunity to directly support individuals and communities most harmed by marijuana prohibition. While every community has suffered economic impacts from the pandemic, Moore emphasizes that the need for additional resources for recovery will be greatest in areas that were most affected by the criminalization of marijuana. Those same communities, because of structural inequities, are facing layer upon layer of additional crises from COVID-19 deaths and job losses and business closures that are hitting even harder than everywhere else in the state. She adds that two-thirds of New Yorkers support marijuana legalization, giving the state an opportunity to create a new national model for marijuana reform. Moore notes that the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, first introduced in 2013, shows the legislature sees economic equity as an important part of marijuana legalization. The fact that the bill that is pending in the legislature includes those components, I think, puts the onus back on the governor to make sure that what moves in the budget session this year also has that comprehensive equity and community reinvestment. The governor is expected to release more details of his proposal soon. For New York News Connection, I'm Andrea Sears. In national news, Trump is now the first American president to be impeached twice. Ten Republicans joined Democrats in supporting the impeachment proceedings. Senate trial will probably not start until after Biden's inauguration. More from our friends at Pacifica Network and the Public News Service. Welcome to 2020. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we track the transition in uncharted territory. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. Ten Republicans joined all Democrats voting to impeach President Donald Trump, including Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the number three House Republican. 197 voted against. This makes Trump the first American president to be impeached twice. Last year, not a single Republican voted for impeachment. Republican Representative Dan Newhouse from Washington State says the president took an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Last week, there was a domestic threat at the door of the Capitol, and he did nothing to stop it. That is why, with a heavy heart and clear resolve, I will vote yes on these articles of impeachment. Senate Majority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell says he will not bring the Senate back into session for a trial before Biden's inauguration on January 20th. This impeachment, President Trump is charged with inciting the insurrection of the Capitol on January 6th. Democratic Representative Joaquin Castro of Texas described the danger lawmakers faced that day. What do you think they would have done if they had gotten in? And who do you think sent them here? The most dangerous man to ever occupy the Oval Office. If inciting a deadly insurrection is not enough to get a president impeached, then what is? Castro is also one of nine Democrats Pelosi named to lead the impeachment effort. All are lawyers with expertise in constitutional law, civil rights, and law enforcement. Lead trial manager is Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a constitutional lawyer who drafted the impeachment article. Representative Kevin McCarthy of California, the House Republican leader, voted against impeachment, saying it would further divide the country, a sentiment many House Republicans share. The counter is that Republicans who enable the divisive behavior of President Trump have no right to use this argument. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. 
These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility, quell the brewing unrest, and ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. McCarthy blames Trump for the attack, but prefers censuring to impeachment. Federal intelligence officials warn of militia groups and racist extremists targeting the presidential inauguration on January 20th. During the impeachment hearing yesterday, the White House issued a statement from Trump urging no more violence, lawbreaking, or vandalism. Quote, that is not what I stand for, and it is not what America stands for, unquote. National Guards are already securing the Capitol. 20,000 are expected for Inauguration Day security in Washington, D.C. Airbnb and Hotel Tonight are also canceling all D.C. metro reservations ahead of the inauguration. And Google is banning political ads till then. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura ross Thanks for listening. U.S. Congressman uh, Tom Reed voted against the impeachment measure, which passed in the House yesterday. Earlier, he had called on President Trump to denounce the domestic terrorists who attacked the U.S. Capitol last Wednesday. WRFI contributor John Donville has more. Congressman Tom Reed, who represents the 23rd District, has been vocal this week in criticizing President Trump in the aftermath of the violent mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Reed co-signed a letter alongside Representative Josh Gottheimer from New Jersey, calling on the president to, quote, please address the nation and unequivocally denounce domestic terrorism, condemn harmful propaganda, urge anyone considering mobilizing to stay home, and affirmatively state that you are in no way supportive of violent messages of any kind, end quote. However, in an op-ed for the New York Times, Reid argued against Trump's impeachment, citing, quote, inadequate time to reasonably investigate, present, and debate impeachment proceedings, end quote. Reid also said the following on a media call yesterday. The division and uh, anger uh, that is being exacerbated uh, by this snap impeachment uh, cannot be underestimated. The congressman also argued that President Trump's actions, quote, may not qualify as incitement, end quote. Reid was outvoted as the House voted to impeach President Trump yesterday, making him the first president to be impeached twice. The congressman has been a strong supporter of Trump since his first presidential bid. Representative John Katko, who represents the 24th Congressional District, was one of 10 Republicans to vote to impeach the president, according to the Times Union. On Tuesday night, he said, quote, to allow the president of the United States to incite this attack without consequence is a direct threat to the future of our democracy, unquote. Katko was the sole Republican New York congressman to vote in favor of impeachment. Impeachment proceedings will now head to the United States Senate, where it is unlikely that there will be a vote before President-elect Joe Biden is inaugurated on January 20th. For WRFI Community Radio News, I'm John Donville. And that concludes our headline news for tonight. Coming up, you'll hear another tale from Trampoline Story, Story Slam competition. Today's story features WRFI volunteer Peter Bakia. That's after the break on WRFI Community Radio News. Stay with us. Shuttling by the wonderful Katie Lang, and this is WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Ed von Atterkass. And I'm Peter Champelli.
Now we're going to end our show with another live story from the Trampoline Story Slam, this time from one of our own WRFI contributors. A couple years back, the local group was hosting weekly story competitions live in downtown Ithaca. One event in August 2016 was themed Seven Deadly Sins during the year in hell season. WRFI's very own Peter Bakia participated in the show and talks about when he was a mere teenager in the 80s, he plotted to murder another 12-year-old. Spoiler alert, he did not kill anyone. But how it went down is noteworthy. He tells his story live from the Lot 10 stage. So when I was 12 years old in seventh grade, I was a very committed nerd. I was into math, science fiction, and chess. And I was a little sweet, like, skinny kid with an awesome, like, 1981 bowl cut going on, 82. And I spent my weekends, like, riding around on a bike with my friends, watching Star Trek, and playing Dungeons & Dragons. So basically, I was one of those kids from Stranger Things, if you've seen that show. That was entirely me. And part of being a nerdy kid in 1982 who was nice was like my part of the food chain was to get like picked on by bullies and it was just part of my life it was just something that you went through and I'm sure many of you out there have been through the same experience you like grew up as a kid and people picked on you and most of the time it was really it was it was impersonal it was like you know the tough kids their job was to pick on the nerds and the nerd kids their job was to sit there and take it And basically every day of my life went something like this. Uh, Hey, loser, what are you doing? Um, my math. (laughs) Only losers do math. (laughs) This this is math class. Uh, shut up, loser. Bam! And he'd punch me in the shoulder and walk away. And that was most of my life in, like, middle school, which it is for many people in middle school unless you're, like, a big, tough kid. And, you know, I learned to live with it. It wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't enjoy it. It made me sad, but what are you going to do? But it was always very impersonal until I ended up in seventh grade, I ended up in cooking class, like home ec cooking class, and I was put in a group with two or three other kids, and one of the kids in this group was a kid named Brett. I will call him Brett because his name is Brett. And he decided to make my life like a horrible, nightmarish hell. And he would... He would, like, kick me. He would punch me in the arm. He would call me names. He would just brutalize me, all while we also had to make lasagna, which was not, it was not conducive to doing well in this class. His signature move was a lock dead arm, where he would take his padlock for his locker, which for some reason was in his backpack and not on his locker. He'd put it in his hand and put his hasp over his knuckle and, like, whale me in the arm and give me a big bruise on my arm. It was horrible. I hated it. I was a miserable like, abused, like, 12-year-old in this school. I don't want to, like, give my home ec teacher too much guff or, like, her life was probably also hell for having to teach, like, seventh graders how to cook, but she did nothing about this, and I'm sure at least, like, five times Brett would pull my chair out and make me fall down and hurt myself, and I'd yell at him, and she'd come over and, like, castigate me for disrupting class. Like, that happened at least five times. I was miserable. I would, like go home, I was depressed, I would, like, weep all the time. It was horrible. And because I was, like, a little, like, really sweet, really nice kid who just, I just wanted to, like, you know, be friendly and, like, hang out with my buddies, I came up with a good plan to deal with Brett, which was to murder him. 
And, and I say this, like, you know, humorously, but no, I actually had a plan to murder him. And I was, I was a smart kid, and I, I figured out that, you know, we're in cooking class, there are knives. I, I picked out a knife to use for my crime. Um, I, I did math in my head. I was like, well, no one's going to see it coming from, like, a nice, innocent 12-year-old when I stab this kid in the neck. And no one's going to know what's going on, so when he drops to the ground and bleeds out, he will be dead before anybody, like, knows what to do. And I'm 12. I'm not going to go to prison. I'll probably, like, go to a mental institution for a couple years, and then I'll come back from high school. And, you know, no one will mess with me anymore because I'll be that guy who stabbed that kid in the neck. And I, like, I put a lot of thought into this. Like, I really had a really serious plan to murder this kid, like, legitimately murder him. And I I don't want to say that I have sympathy for people who, like, go to schools and commit violent crimes. And I I almost didn't tell this story because apparently there was some horrible shooting in Texas in a high school today. And I, I have no sympathy for those people. But I understand how it happens. Like, I can see how it gets to that point. And if I had been, I mean... Cut to the chase. Spoiler, I didn't kill another 12-year-old boy. Um, but I really wanted to. I, if I had been a slightly less stable kid, a slightly more desperate kid, uh, you know, a slightly more unhappy kid, I would have stabbed the crap out of that guy, and I would have murdered a 12-year-old as a 12-year-old. But after a few weeks of, like, you know, me really having this plan, I, I picked up the knife once. I was like, all right, here, I'm going in, I'm going in. All right, I won't do it. Home ec class ended, and I got away from this kid. And we were never in class again, and we were never interacting again. He spent, like, ten weeks of my life making my life a living hell, and then he, like, forgot all about me. And we went off to high school, and I went to a big high school, and I'd see him in the hallways, but we never interacted at all. It was just, like, every time I see him, I'd be like, I was going to kill that guy, like, literally stab him. But nothing ever came of it until... 25 years later, I was at my high school 20-year reunion, which is where all these all stories apparently go to, and I was in the bathroom, because I went to a really big high school, and none of my like close friends were at this, this reunion, and so I, I had a lot of free drinks at this expensive hotel, and so I was in the bathroom, and I was peeing, and I was you know washing my hands, and I, and I hear somebody walk in the bathroom, and then somebody goes, Peter! And I kind of look up at the mirror, and it's Brett. And this is, this is a dude I hadn't talked to in 25 years. And the last time I did, he was, like, punching me and making me miserable. And I'm, like, looking around. I'm making sure he's talking to me. And he's talking to me. I'm the only person there. And I'm like, hey, Brett, what's going on? And he walks up to me. And he grabs me by the hand, shakes my hand, gives me a big bro hug. And I'm just completely, like, baffled by all of this. And I'm like, hey, man, what's, what's go- going on? And he starts talking to me about his family and where he's living and his dog and his kids and catching up. And I have this sort of combination of, A, I don't give a crap, and B, I wanted to actually murder you. And here you are giving me a bro hug in a bathroom. And so we chat awkwardly for like eh, a couple minutes. And I start walking out of the bathroom and he goes, Dude, I'm really glad I got to see you again. And I kind of looked at him and said, M- me, me too? Thank you. 
WRFI contributor and DJ Peter Bagia with his 2016 performance in Trampoline's Seven Deadly Sins storytelling competition live at Lot 10 in Ithaca. Even through a pandemic, Trampoline has continued to host live storytelling events online. We've been teaming up with the group to bring these community voices right here to our program, so stay tuned for more stories in the coming weeks. And that will do it for our program today. Our website is wrfi.org, where you can take another listen to the original news features by the WRFI news team. And to get the latest news on local, regional, and state stories about COVID-19, visit wrfi.org slash coronavirus. The headlines at the top of our program were written by WRFI contributors Esther Rakusin, John Donville, Anna Lamb, and news director Michaela Sabat. Today's feature producers were WRFI contributors Don, John Donville and Casey Georgie. Peter Champelli was my co-host today, and I'm Ed Clamatercast. We'll be back tomorrow night and every weekday evening at 6 to bring you more of the stories impacting our communities. On behalf of the entire WRFI news team, take care, be well, and have a good evening. Two, three. W R F I.
you probably won't have the same support for your queer relationship that straight kids have for theirs. Young people are the future of the world.